Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations, and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding, and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the fifth episode of Design Your Life, from Lego to Skyscrapers, the life of an architect. I'll be speaking to some of the most influential architects who are shaping our cities and the way that we live. We go behind the facade to understand what inspires them, how they juggle business and family life, and the responsibility that comes with designing the places, cities, and destinations that we live, work, and play in. In today's episode, I'll be catching up with one of Australia's most celebrated architects, William Smart, on his journey from growing up in country Australia to designing some of the most iconic Australian residences and buildings. And today we're doing our Design Your Life live from Redfern. Um, we're doing the architecture series and today our special guest is William Smart. Hey, William. Hey, it's Vince. Thank you for having me. Today. That's really cool to have you here. We've done some work indirectly in the past uh, on Central Park, which we'll talk about later. But I've been watching you from afar, not that far, because we're both in Sydney and I often see you running around with your dog in parks and stuff. But I'm just amazed at the work that you're doing today, and in a very short period of time, it seems like 10, 15 years, which for some people that's not a short period of time, but you've definitely grown. And you're now you know, one of Australia's leading architects and architecture firm, Smart Design. How did it all start for you? What was, what was the, can you talk a little bit about, I know it's a big question too, how did you, how did you kick it off? Mm. Um, I think from a very young age, I, I, someone had told me when they saw me drawing or making sandcastles, because I'd make those to perfection. <laughs> you should be an architect. And I thought about that and thought, I quite like the sound of that. That sounds good, because I like drawing, and I'm quite technical as well, like enjoy maths and physics and all those uh, academic subjects. So I decided very young that I would be an architect. And then during my teens, I oscillated between architecture and design and really a focus on car design. I was sort of very interested ah. in and when I went to university, I actually applied for both, to do industrial design and architecture. And I got into both, and then I had to make the choice. Oh, are you serious? Yes. <laughs> but I ended up choosing architecture, because I thought it was more, in a way, free. And I think that's right. So I thought the world of car design, uh, at the time I thought it would be quite prescriptive, like you'd have to design a, a car that's like a Corolla or a... BMW 3 Series or something, and you have to fit into that category and obey all the rules and you couldn't deviate too much. And I didn't mm-hmm. know whether I would enjoy that or not. I thought I perhaps want to be a bit freer than that. So I chose architecture from a young age and then sort of bumbled my way through the first year of university and then in second year really found my feet and just kind of loved it, just lived it, breathed it, did everything around it um, before going off and doing some travelling. And was that in Australia? Or was that in Sydney? In, in Perth, actually. Oh, in Perth. I studied at Curtin University in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the country mm. and, and went to university without having any kind of sense of design education, really. So the, uh, high school for me was more about the academic subjects. And then um, when I turned up at university, I just didn't really know about 
you know, great art or great architecture or anything and just kind of spent the first year finding my feet and, mm. and getting into that. And then after um, studying, I went on, off and worked in Europe for five years. I spent some time in France and some time in London and uh, learned different things when I was there before coming home, just before the Olympics, mm. to work on the Olympic Park Railway Station for Hassel. And I worked on that project for two years. And at the end of that time, it just happened that a couple of people contacted me about the same time and said, would you do this small job for me? And would you do this small job for me? And I thought, I, I think I would, yes. Okay, what was a small job? It wasn't someone's bathroom, was it, or a just toilet? About, just about, there was a, I did an apartment renovation for $50,000 in 1997. And I did a terrace extension the same year about 120,000 and it were just kind of like crazy low budgets mm-hmm. where you had to micromanage the whole of the construction to make it happen and, and push your way through it and after that another job came and another job came and it slowly grew and that was 23 years ago now so I remember when we won a, uh, a lot of awards actually for the Indigo Slam house someone said to me Jesus, where did you come from? I don't know. I haven't seen you. You must have just yeah. come out of nowhere. Yeah. And I said, it's actually, I've been doing this for nearly 20 years now. So mm. it's taken me 20 years to become an overnight success. Yeah. Even if I say so myself. Right. <laughs> well, that was, it. He, he coined the question, yeah, yeah. how did you become this overnight success? And I reframed it to say it took me 20 years to do it. Yeah. And which is a very long time, right? When you're in it when you're doing it and when you're starting out from that one project working for someone on the side when you're trying to do your day job that's right um people forget about that how hard that is how exciting it is but also how hard it is to to make that all happen Mm. and it's it's quite yeah it's amazing when you see i I have some conversations with people who say about indigo slam they're going holy crap well i won't say what they say but they just say have you seen this building Mm. in sydney like, there's people around the world, not just local. People locally can't stand it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, but people are going, where is that place? It's incredible. Who's behind it? Who paid for it? Who owns it? Is it a house? Is it, you know, I was like, you must get that. And mm. it's, so it's not, and, and I've, you know, seen what you've done over the years through the local press and local social and people talking about stuff. And you just see... It's not often you see someone's career or someone's practice kind of grow like that, grow to that extent. I remember you seeing Central Park when we were doing the branding with Dr. Quack, which we have in common. Amazing visionary. And when he's working on Central Park, which was at the time that probably both of us were talking to him, was a hole in the ground mm. and, and a major kind of obstacle for the people in Chippendale. Mm. And uh, to hear his vision and hear him talking about what it was going to become and bringing in people like you, who I'd never really heard about before, you know, Smart Design, William Smart, go, yeah, 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 I know who he is. But really, often I go, well, I don't know who that person is necessarily. Go back and kind of Google them and, and find out who they are and go, wow, they do really cool things. But it was kind of not that long ago, like, what is it, 10 years ago probably that we're working on that development yeah. and you were doing an interior design scheme. There's two options on central, one central um, park, which was one of the towers, I guess we call it. And you and Koichi was doing, Koichi was doing the other one. His was kind of Japanese and organic, and yours was obviously highly influenced by beautiful, shiny cars. Mm. 
it was interesting to see now in hindsight seeing that because I was on social media the other day looking at, at you and I just keep seeing these GT Ferrari GTs 250s uh, on there the California I was obviously got into some major money by doing architecture <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out it's not that uh, it's obviously the, a passion from, from day one when you were yeah. starting out as a young designer so and I kind of like I, I grew up out of town in the country and a lot of that um, love of cars was sort of self-directed like I sort of get the wheels ca- magazine every month and read literally every word and I could just memorise all the facts about any car and I would study the design of it and then it became in my teens while I was at high school a kind of passion where I would spend my weekends designing new cars Wow! and um, then over summer holidays making scale models of them in clay or in paper mache and just kind of forming them up and I loved, I loved that world I was mm. kind of completely interested in it. and I think um, my father then at the end of high school started buying old cars and restoring them so that sort of I think he got the bug that I had and he would buy old cars and restore them and fix them up and then just ended up getting you know five or six beautiful old cars and oh so wow it became this kind of dual love of the automotive industry. But on the Central Park project, we, we tried to bring that into it because mm. um, there was this aspiration by Dr. Quick, who is an extraordinary visionary, to present something very luxurious in quite compact spaces. Mm. And I was just sort of grappling with that, thinking, how do I do that? Because in my mind, luxury is about space mm. and about yeah. emptiness as much as it is about detail. And these were like, were they 40 square meters? 40 square meter, one bedroom apartment. So, yeah, which is never seen in Sydney prior. Never been seen in Sydney before that. And, and what we ended up realizing, that as well as having an opportunity to work within a Jean-Nouvel building and bring about the architecture of that practice, which is often you know, futuristic and shiny and beautifully finished, we thought we could devise a concept that linked to the car industry and to boats and speedboats in particular, which... Um, actually more luxurious as they get smaller in many mm. ways and then bring that forward so we developed a concept called high speed luxury nice and it was just really about saying get down to the detail can we have leather details in the bathroom which we did with stitching and can we bring in a few details that elevates the standard of the product to something that you hadn't really seen in Sydney before mm. so it was very integrated very streamlined kind of future looking and kind of exploited some of the things that I had just developed a natural passion for. And in cars, I think there's, a, there's an interesting world because the car industry has form and we're all attracted to the form and we'll have opinions about what cars we like the look of or the DNA of, if their kind of branding is about that. Mm. But there's also a, a functional component to it, isn't there? The performance yeah. of the car, the, the ability to take certain numbers of people baggage or you know and nowadays we're making choices on sustainability and other things in cars as well so I feel like there's a whole world there that I just look at and think that is really interesting is a v12 sustainable single seater v12 I don't don't own that car (laughs) okay all right not not yet not yet I want to get an electric car next oh do you yeah yeah for sure I want to electrify my car um how do you do that you can do that yeah really yeah how important for was was it for you living and working overseas for that early those early days? Mm, it was. And what drove that? You just felt you need to get out and go see the world. Yeah, yep. 
um, it was absolutely you know, crucial, I think, and it's such a good thing. And I think my parents both encouraged me to go travelling before life got more lockdown, as they would describe it. They were saying, one day you're going to have children and a mortgage and all those things are going to stop you from travelling. So go and do it while you're young, mm. before you develop those Was they using lockdown at that stage? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Had different meaning, didn't it? Probably similar <laughs> for some people. Yeah, I think they, they were thinking of mortgage lockdown yeah. rather than coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, kind of just wanted to really um, explore the world, and I think I'd you know, gone to school and gone to university and got right into university and felt like my life had been a bit consumed by this passion of architecture. And I really wanted just to have a bit of time out and have a bit of fun. So the choices of Europe were as much about career choices as they were about nightclubs and bars and you know, places mm. to go out and run wild for a little bit. And I, I did all of that in living in London and France and, and really loved it. But in France, I kind of had this world where the money was different, the language was different, the food was different. You drove on the other side of the road. Mm. It felt like such a joy to live an entirely different form yeah. of life to where I'd come from. And Upside down. Just absorbed it and loved it completely. Yeah. It was such a thrilling experience. And then London was a little bit closer to home um, in that the language was similar and, mm. you know, the culture is quite similar. But this, the difference between Perth, where I'd come from, and London was vast and I just was completely absorbed with, you know, the excitement of that city and Mm. what it had to offer culturally and what the nightlife had to offer. And Did it blow you away? I mean, that's such a contrast to Perth. I mean, I love Perth. It's amazing. But yeah. such a contrast, London to, yeah. um, to Perth CBD, if you can call it that. Not, not so much blow me away, but the contrast. Like, and only because I was just aching for all of that. I wanted to live in a place where mm. it was super dense and you would just encounter things all the time. Mm. And, go to crowded places. I loved all that. So I just was, I was just so ready for it. Particularly after, because I did London after living in France as well. So I was living down the south of France and it was quiet oh. and remote and, and then going to London was just like, like a boy in a candy store. I thought this is really... Were you Saint-Tropez, Port Grimaud? Where? A little bit further north, more towards Toulouse. So that kind of area. So inland, in a place nice. where um, the work that I was doing was more about the proportion of architecture, the tradition of architecture, the history of architecture, the respect of all that on a very small scale. Mm. And then the work I was doing in London was with um, Foster and Partners Office. So, mm. And at that time, the studio was about 70 people when I started there, so quite small wow. compared to now. And that Just was back in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> when was this? Yeah. 80s? Not 40s, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're like thousands of people now, aren't they? I think so, yeah. Like, it was back in the, the early 90s. Wow. And, um, and that was, you know... On the river? In the they had just moved to the river. Yeah, yeah so on in, the Thames. Yeah, and they had that beautiful studio. And we all worked in the one room, um, whereas there were multiple buildings or multiple oh levels my now. God. And it was just this place where I learned all about the clarity of architecture, how clear could you make the diagram, the process, and how do you make a good building so yeah. it's not... It's not just drawn, it's involving many people and many mm. different steps and each of those needs to work successfully to get to the next stage. Were, were you like a, like a junior at that yeah, stage? Yeah, yeah, the most junior. Wow. <laughs> and I wasn't even on CAD those days, so I just sat on a drawing table, yeah. drawing with a rotating pen on, you know, facing paper. Yeah. Um, but they were kind of different experiences, but they kind of taught me a lot and I think when I came back and I heard people say Australia is the greatest place in the world to live, 
I used to think, yes and no. This, um, there are other things in other places which are amazing that you couldn't say we do better. Like some of the food and mm. you get in the south of France is actually amazing. Yeah. And some of the cultural experience. But there is, in Australia, there is just so much opportunity. And when I came back, I realised that, you know, we are so unshackled to, mm. you know, this in design and there's so many opportunities that come mm. our way mm. and I just I came back and thought well, that's that's my reason why you know this city in particular and this country is probably yeah. the best place for me to be in the world yeah I really love the opportunities we have here yeah I, I moved here with the family in end of 2003 and people in London kept saying why would you want to move to Australia I had no idea really what it'd be like but I could just see opportunity everywhere because mm. it was I've realized how, how dense and competitive it was back in London, which is, a, mm. which is also a good thing. And the culturally, the mix is amazing and mm. inspiring. But coming here, you're just thinking, well, well, there's so much opportunity. Not that we want to have everybody coming here now. Um, but um, you just see that there's potential to take what you've learned, no matter how long you've been somewhere else, but mm. bring that into the mix and, and make Sydney a better place. Mm. Have you always been a creative person, do you think? Yeah, I mean, is I it think since the sandcastles or prior to that, were you... Is your family creative as well? Not, not so much, no. It doesn't sort of come from anyone in the family. Definitely not, actually. But um, I do, yes, I was always, you know, drawing before I could write. Always drawing. And so you'll find, I mean, I've, occasionally you stumble across an old diary and there'd be drawings of old cars or my fashion design. <laughs> or, oh, cool. Or houses and things in the back of them. But I was always drawing and I could draw beautifully as a, as a young kid and wow. I remember bumping into the lady that babysat me when I was a little toddler and she said you were just so much more creative than the other kids you were kind of off in your own dreamland wow. making up these kind of really interesting little scenarios that she she observed that kind of uh, shocked me to hear that a little bit later and then I just have never really stopped that I've always done a bit of painting made a few little things kind of still draw it now and occasionally you'll see in my sketchbook a drawing of the dog or the cows or something that's mm. just you know me kind of doodling with a pen yeah well it's really cool that you continue to do that it's so important that self-expression outside of well include in your work and outside of your work yeah. um so many of us i think uh through the current education process are their creativity is kind of drummed out of them by being neat being told to be neat tidy and uh behave and all that kind of stuff we're creative expression we're all born creative right and we all have that in us who's, who's been your biggest influence like in your life apart from ferraris and things like that um you know creatively architects uh musicians whatever whatever certainly you know there's a couple of go-to architects that i just love all the time i really love the work of alvera caesar this portuguese architect who does mm -hmm. beautiful quirky strange buildings i just i absolutely love the work of that practice and go there all the time but probably the biggest influence has been a guy called Bill Busfield who in first year university told me to come and visit him in the office and I had got through the end of first semester and I think I got 51% for design so just passed mm. and every other subject was a bit like that and it wasn't through lack of trying it was just through terrible designs actually I was just doing terrible things and I think this I, when you're, you're in Perth yeah and huh. it sort of came along and the, the first projects I did that would give you this kind of incredible brief like design a house with five rules and they give you the rules and I would 
give them a drawing of a beautiful drawing of a project home and just had no idea how to do it you know the gutters were and the eaves were exactly like a project home with you know the right kind of brick I was so far from where the other students were it wasn't funny but at the end of the first year he said come to my first semester he said come to my office I need to have a chat to you and oh. I really thought I was going to be turfed out of class because he was quite firm and then he gave me a book on Cedric Price and said go and have a look at this this is really interesting and I did that and found it kind of blew my mind it was a totally different world and then through that this the second semester where he was the chief tutor he just kept feeding the books and I would read mm. them entirely and then the work I was doing started to change wow and in university some we were quite a small class like 30 something kids and I had him as my tutor every six months for the full five years. And then through that period, we developed this wonderful dialogue and we're still friends today. And it just, I would say, I just, I often think what would have happened if he didn't cast an eye over my shoulder yeah. and say, go and read the Cedric Price book. He opened your world, didn't he? That's right. And that's sort of like this kind of incredible experience for me. I feel very lucky to have had that. And it's really cool that it, like if you if you felt that you were failing, and everybody else was getting it. It's it's incredible as a teacher should do not not kind of push you further down or dismiss you, but to actually encourage you and open open that world to you specifically. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so that guy has been one of your biggest influences. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think Bill, you know, Bill Busfield. And then in the later years, I feel like what started to happen is he would say, "Go and look at this. I think you'll like this." And half of it I would like, and half of it I think that's actually not me, that's you. Mm. And I started to mm. develop my own voice under the, the guidance of someone who was very strongly opinionated. And that was also a good lesson for me. And we, we caught up probably two years ago and I said to him, you know, what you and I like are different. And he said, I, I always knew that. You know, I could see what you're doing now is what you're always going to do. Yeah. I could see that back then. And I was quite surprised at that. I always thought, he wanted me to do something different to what I was doing. Is he now laying claim to your success? <laughs> he, look, he, he is a great educator and many people who have studied under him um, really admire the work that he's done. Mm. That's incredible. And we all need that. We all need that person, that kind of that mentor that maybe indirectly influences in such a, a positive way. Mm. I, we talked about it before, the, the, the Indigo Slam, which you, you know, Judith Nielsen's home, which you designed, which is obviously an incredible home. Prior to that, you, in Chippendale, you designed her the, the White Rabbit Gallery. Mm. Uh, that was prior to Central Park too, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So was that like, what, 12 years ago? Yep, that's right, about 12 years ago. So they had the 10th anniversary. We probably started even more than that, maybe 13 14 years ago, the design process. Wow. And I remember... It's when I was a small child. <laughs> me too, me too. <laughs> Just doing my car drawing yes. as, as a teenager. And then um, we had built a building in Burke Street. and um, Your building, right? Yeah. yeah. We moved now to Alexandria. What, actually, what, did you, what have you done before that? Because I don't know what you'd done prior to your studio. I'm not, not much. It was kind of a big leap for me. I'd sort of... Massive leap. ...designed a... Uh, apartment renovation and then a small addition to a terrace and then after that they were all kind of interiors based projects mm. and um, I thought part of the strategy I suppose in 
in, in designing our existence as a company was to do a building that people would notice and people would think this is an architect who can do buildings because I could have very easily become an interior designer based on yeah. the demand that was knocking on the door. And Judith um, knocked on the door of that one day and, um, I'd, and she just turned up and someone said at reception, there's a lady here to see you, she wants to build an art gallery, are you interested? But I remember finishing the meeting and thinking, who is this person? Because she said she wanted to build an art gallery and that nothing would be for sale and it would exhibit contemporary Chinese art at a time when that was emerging as a kind of mm. art form to be critically acclaimed. Way ahead of her time. Yeah, and she said to me she wanted the cafe to have poets reading poetry and talking about creative things and that um, it would, nothing would be for sale, would be free to go in there. And then she started showing me pictures of the artwork and they were drawing or paintings of guns that would shoot both ways and, mm. you know, this kind of strange car with a long tongue and then tall red people and... I'd never seen anything like it. And didn't so she have the biggest Chinese art collection in the world or something? She does now. Yeah. Does now. Insane. Yeah. yeah. So since, since the year 2000 is the, is the collection. So we um, worked on that project before Central Park was getting built. Mm. And then um, I really loved that project. It was kind of um, not just a great opportunity, but it also took me into another world that I hadn't done public buildings before or really enjoyed that process. And what was the size of the team then, of your team? We would have been about, I think we were 12 at that time, yeah. around 12. So, so we've kind of, look, it's really sort of slowly grown by, um, you know, it's 23 years. It sort of grows by like two a year or something like that. Mm. And we're 40 people now. But about five years ago we hit 40 and then we said no more mm. because I felt that either life was going to have to, you know, get harder by taking up more time to control mm -hmm. the output we would do or the quality of the work would suffer. Mm. And so the decision was to cap it at 40 and to then really focus on trying to make that work as a business and as a, an architectural practice that's really endeavouring to do some of the best work in the country. And how did, how did she... She didn't come to you because you were just around the corner. She came to you because she'd seen something. Was it your house? Yeah, so she'd studio? seen the new building that we were building and yeah. that it just happened that the building she bought in, in Chippendale um, was sold by someone who'd asked me to do a feasibility study ah. on the building. So he had called me and said, how many apartments can you squeeze into okay. this? And so I had done a test fit and I thought, I could fit this, like 10 apartments in there if you want to turn it into apartments. Yeah. And then after that, he decided he didn't want to do it and he wanted to, he sold the building to Judith and Care Nielsen and then she sort of commissioned us to do the, the White Rabbit Gallery, which was one of those moments in hindsight that was just uh, a transforming moment for our business. It changed who we were, how people perceived us. It, just, it kind of completely opened many doors for us and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. I think it also was, I mean, funny enough, they're our landlord as well. This yeah. building they own, this building, really? and that one and that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it actually was a significant time in terms of kind of the transformation of Chippendale. Mm. Because Chippendale was very kind of, I guess, work, working cottages, warehouses. Um, obviously, the Truman Brewery hole in the ground that had been there for like 10 years prior was a real obstacle. And, and I remember going to look at the site with Dr. Quack and, and just thinking, that's a very special building. Mm. And even today... It's actually it's it's a, a major part of the the local community, the tapestry of Chippendale. 
and it looks brand, it looks brand new. It still looks like fresh and still uh, an important building. And it's interesting to see how, in a way, Chippendale's grown around it, with obviously the Central Park and then you know across the road where the Indigo Slam. And how did Indigo Slam? I mean, obviously you didn't you didn't you did the White Rabbit, then you didn't do Indigo Slam straight away. That's another ten years later. Yeah, but yeah. what did you do after White Rabbit? What did that attract to you? We probably finished 10 years ago. Um, after that, we we sort of, I suppose, started to do larger projects. Um, so s- straight after that, I did a building for the Australasian Performing Rights Association, which was similar to White Rabbit, but a lot bigger, four or five times the size of that, but an adaptive reuse project. And I, I guess after that, I started to become skillful at doing these adaptive reuse projects. And mm. we tried to embed with them a really strong sustainability sense so that the the APRA building, Australasian Performing Rights, that had naturally natural ventilation for an office building, which was very new at the time, mm-hmm. and rainwater harvesting and solar panels and a whole bunch of other things in it. And then at the same time, we were sort of building houses. And I think I had hoped around that time that I would probably graduate just to do larger buildings. But we kept getting commissions to do beautiful houses that were irresistible reefs therefore we just kept doing that as a business and I don't um, regret that at all Mm. because in our world we're able to do these very custom beautifully made houses and no expense spared sometimes most of the time there's a budget and you've really got to work to it but sometimes people come along and say the budget is secondary the quality of the house is the most important thing. Wow. So let's make it very handmade and very special, which is what Judith really wanted with her house. Yeah. But what we kind of also do is, lessons learned from that, we'll kind of take into larger projects. So not long after that, I've been sort of dabbling with concrete for a bit. Um, after doing many years of uh, white houses, because that's all the budget would really afford. Mm. Um, and then after that, we would learn lessons in how to build with concrete. And then we did some apartment buildings where all the interiors were concrete, concrete walls, concrete ceilings, tiled floors. We just could learn a little bit from that. So having both large-scale and small-scale projects works quite well for us. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of doing a bit of both. And then Judith came along and said, um, on a Saturday, called me and said, would you like to do a house for me? I want to build a new house. It would be great fun. And Did um, you say that? Were you more discreet? No, no, I'd be like... Oh, okay. let me see if I can fit it in. I've got quite a lot on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she said at the time, she said, if you do it, you've got to hurry because I'm, you know, I'm thinking I'm, if you don't do it, then I'm going to get Frank Gehry to do this house. And so she, oh, that, was, that was her words. Nice. <laughs> and she wanted to get moving with it really quickly and we did that. She wrote it out on a bit of paper, a four bit of paper that said the house has to be manual, it must have brick floors, I've got to be able to clean it myself... Um, I need a dining table Seriously? for 60. Um, I don't want any curtains. And she got the most beautiful handwriting, so I kept brief. It's in a file somewhere I should frame it. Mm. And, um, and You've then got 10 grand for concepts. No. That's right. Yeah, no, there was none of that. It was just like, just get on with it. Well, oh, my God. And then, the, and then the first meeting she said, I think we should make this the best house in Sydney. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm up for that. The next meeting, she upped the ante and said, let's make it the best house in Australia. And then the next meeting, she said, what about the world? Wow. So this is kind of... And, you know, you sort of laugh at these things at the time, but I know that she was 
kind of serious about it. So saying, let's do something really great. Did you ever have an issue with the... Did you ever think, well, about the location being not... Like, did you think... Well, that's, what's that street called? It's O'Connor Street. Yeah, did you yeah. ever think that that street, you could do that there? You know, create the best house in the world? Because um, it's pretty industrial, isn't it? Pretty, yeah. Pretty raw and... Yeah, in a, in a way, it sort of works to what I love. And I love... I mean, I kind of prefer a wall to a window... Mm. is my sort of world. So harbourfront always means a lot of windows and therefore I'm never as attracted to that as an architecture type right. as being somewhere in the city where you've got to try to frame views of a park in this case because mm-hmm. it's obviously a park or you've got to respond to the privacy um, conflicts of a neighbouring building and how do you do all that. So for me it was just perfect, I think. I love this. Mm. But her, her view was that she'd been living in... Um, on the north side, looking at the water for her That's life. True. And, and she said, it's kind of boring after a Mc, while. McMahon's McMa- point. McMahon's point, yeah. yeah. So she, she'd said, you know, I want to walk to Woolies and walk to work and just live this kind of local life. And and I, I can relate to that because I, you know, live in the city and just love being a part of the city. And, mm. you know, most of the time I don't use my car on the weekends. I'll walk everywhere or ride on my bike somewhere mm-hmm. and just enjoy all of that. So I kind of understood all that. But the, but the house also was a project that was somewhere... Like, it has almost a public aspect to it. It's got a mm. dining table for 60 people downstairs and, and to serve that kind of room, you need a full commercial kitchen and more than one loo in mm. the house on ground floor. So there's a kind of part of the house which was an extension of her endeavours as a philanthropist and... Entertainer. Yeah, and entertainer. Bringing people together. Bringing people together and also um, kind of spreading the word... You know, she's kind of interested in supporting certain um, endeavours. You know, an example of that might be slavery in the world. Can can you raise awareness about this? Mm-hmm. Can you help to promote the abolition of, of slavery? That was a dinner I went to at, at Indigo Slam mm-hmm. where Judith hosted that evening to talk about it as a group wow. of people, which was really interesting and fun to do. Wow. How, how many square metres is that building? About 1,200 oh. square metres. Yeah, so it's a substantial building. I can't imagine her cleaning that by herself, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but she might do. It might it, be her it, exercise. It could be done, but it would be a full-time job. Yeah, exactly. Did you... Because I know Kai Lu, who's a good friend and, and of, of mine and yours, and um, we did a podcast with him recently, mm. uh, and he'd worked on that project, that house itself, presumably with you and her, where he's designed all of the furniture yeah. throughout the whole house yeah. as unique pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, how closely did you work with him? Well, we or do you like his furniture? Some of it's quite crazy in the house. And actually, mm. the, the ones I like most are the kind of crazy mm. chairs. There's a chair that looks like a flower. Yes, I, I love that one. I completely love that chair. Um, but yes, we worked closely throughout the whole design process. And we each had our own domain so our responsibility was to do the architecture and the interiors for the house and his was to do the furniture and the furnishing mm. but we would sit in design meetings and talk through it so he'd bring a little maquette of a chair that he'd been working on and present that and talk about that Aww. and then we would uh, present the architecture at the same time and what was really happening is we were both feeding off each other's designs and mm. responding to it so when you see the furniture and the architecture together, there's a kind of a, a natural fit. Yeah. Um, he did that. On, I mean, on a house of that scale, you have to kind of move through the rooms and develop different themes and different moods and different 
use in his case different kinds of woods and, and, and fabrics through the project and kind of develop diversity in there as well. Mm. And he did that very well. And then occasionally we'd have to work on something together. So there would be like if you've got a bed then you need to have a bed head and side tables and get the lights and the mm. you know, the switching and the panelling all in the right way, the right colour at the right you know, finish. So mm. we would kind of collaborate on those parts together as well. Did Judith act as like a creative director as well as a client in that regard? Yeah. Because she's pretty visionary, obviously. Yes. and Or just give you freedom to do whatever you wanted to do. It's sort of, um, it wasn't complete freedom. So there was a, we met with her for every two weeks for the whole of the design process and present new ideas. Mm-hmm. And most of the time she would react very quickly and say, I don't like that, I love that. We're not doing that. Um, and sometimes I would go back and say, I know we said no, but I want to try and change your mind. Mm. <laughs> here's, here's the reasons why. And she was very open to that process as well. So I don't think anything was kind of, no, we can't do it, and that's a shutdown conversation. Mm. She was that kind of client that was interested in why you were thinking of that, what would the benefit be, what would the, the cost or the, the lost opportunity be mm. and how do you balance all those things on, on credit? So mm. incredibly involved. So when we gave her the house, I don't think there was anything there that was a complete surprise, although mm. I did get a, a beautiful text message afterwards just after she'd moved in to say on so many detailed levels there were so many surprises, like she'd open a cupboard and then discover there was a little place for something or a light would turn on or something would happen and all those little details just gave her great joy in the house as well. Mm. And I think there's that plus the way it reacts with its environment, oh, how it crap. embraces natural light. And, you know, there were sort of things we were trying to do with the house to really sculpt, uh, sculpture the ambience within the project, which is um, hard to describe. But I was kind of interested in the, the tone of the shadow within a room. How do I make that? the most beautiful tone. Mm. How do I manipulate light to get that kind of really subtle nuance? And you feel it when you go in the house. People say it's got this kind of monastic feeling and that was sort of dreaminess is one thing we were trying to design into the house as well as the shape of the windows and the walls. Yes, it was, the project was a game changer for you, wasn't it, really? Completely. I mean, Completely. I'll be, yeah, I'm glad you agree because I, I didn't want to kind of project that onto no, no, you. No, no, not, not at all. I mean, you must have learned a hell of a lot from that because you'd really challenge concrete... Yeah. You know, you re- yeah. the wave and the curves and, and all that, just like going, that's what makes it breathtaking. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that, that I just feel that. I mean, people are still walk by and are constantly out there taking photographs of the place, right? Yeah. How did that come about? Was that just from a sketch? Was that through collaboration with your team? Um, Trying to make it looking like a Ferrari Fender? Yeah, so the... Inspiration I came through, I suppose it, for me it's a kind of slow build of things that I love. And if there, was, if there was a Pinterest page of my loves, it would be of great pieces of sculpture, of beautiful graphics, of great paintings. In that, there's kind of this type of sculpture which is about manipulating material, like steel or concrete. And there's a few sculptors, particularly Spanish ones, who do this so well, and I kind of look at their work and marvel at it so i proposed to judith that we design the house um almost like a piece of sculpture Mm. with this kind of language that i showed her and it's taking the language could be described as taking a bit of cardboard cutting it and then folding it and then when you fold the cardboard the pieces that aren't cut form a radius and the pieces that are cut splay and open up 
So it was this kind of language of peeling and folding mm. that we ran through everything in the house. And that... Uh, well, with cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, with concrete, yeah. with copper, with brass, with wood. And it works sort of on every level and it's this kind of language that binds it all together. And we're really sort of trying to explore this idea of instead of having a square or a rectangle grid or a triangle grid that the architect might sort of use as their motive or their planning device, we would have another kind of, I call it a language, but it's the, the, the way you deliver the architecture for the house. And that kind of bind, that binds it all together and I feel like it was kind of great project for that but uh, you know b- back to your question I was um I knew this was a once in a lifetime opportunity and, and to this day I know that, that is absolutely true and mm-hmm. it's you know quite a few years on now so it's we started designing Indigo Slam nine years ago now wow and um I just felt like I had to really jump on it and make it super special so mm. I would spend every Saturday working on my own on on Indigo Slam and then come to Monday and then had a team of people working on it, present where I felt the direction was, the guys would work on that, develop it, and I was always sort of two steps ahead of them, fixing up the the work that was being produced and developing it along with the consultants and then producing the next lot of work. And we ran that over so many levels, so there's the concrete, but also all the houses incredibly manual, so all the windows are linked together with cast brass um, devices. We wind a handle and all the windows open in sequence. And I designed all those components for it. And it was just, you know, tons and tons of work. I think I got halfway through it and thought on a few things. I'd bitten off more than I can chew. But I kind of pushed through that. And then when we were building, um, it went to a period where I was on site every day. You know, I'd get up, run down there with my dog, Mm. tie the dog up, get up on the formwork with all the concreters and then work out all the formwork to be made, check the last lot of formwork and stay really in line with the progression of the project. So tons of work. But I, I love that part of my yeah. job. I really love being on site, working the, with people. Do the builders like you or are they going, oh, God, he's here again with his dog. <laughs> he's going to make us change something. We haven't got the radius correct. Yeah. No? <laughs> Both. Both. <laughs> I think they, they enjoyed, they knew we were building something great and mm. they kind of were certainly on board with that. There well, they must have been challenged too, weren't they? Completely, and I was also a total pain in the ass. I was yeah. not going to let anything no. get by. I didn't want to get to the end of the job and say, you know, I wanted it to be this way, but it didn't turn out that way. I just thought, we're not, we're not doing that. We're going we're gonna to get it right, and if it takes doing it twice, that's for everyone, including me and our office. We would do it twice if we had to. Wow. How important is appropriateness when it comes to what you do and designing for your clients? Yeah, it, it, it's actually... Um, critical and I learned the lesson 20 years ago I designed this house that I completely loved and um, it's in Northbridge a beautiful house nice views and steps down to the I think it's the river there has a pool in the backyard and the clients moved in and had this furniture that I thought was just absolutely terrible and I wanted to take photographs of the house so I turned up with a lorry full of all the furniture I liked, moved theirs out, put ours in, took all the photographs. And as I was packing it up, I, it really hit me hard that I hadn't done them the right service because I hadn't given them the house that fitted who they were. I'd given them the house that I wanted to for them and for that particular site. And that mm. completely changed me after that. I thought to myself, I have to always take it back to giving every client 
a house that fits within their realm and who they are. That's and so considerate of you. <laughs> <laughs> so on the Indigo Slam, I actually started the project by showing Judah three great buildings. One of them was very conservative, one of them was very minimal, and one of them was completely out there. Mm. And I said, if you were to tell me about who you want to be in this house, mm. which one of these best represents it? And she just pointed straight to this museum designed by Alvera Caesar, which has this ramps on the outside. It looks like a, a hand holding a building. Mm. It's so mad and crazy and out there that I just knew that was the job. And she'd already come up with the name Indigo Slam in that case, which is not a quiet walk in the park, drive by me kind of name, is it? Is yeah, where did that come from? I think it was a book that she'd picked up in the airport. So ah. she was waiting for a flight. She went to the, the, the news agency, found a book called Indigo Slam and just thought, I like the title. And that's where it came from. There's nothing indigo in it, is there? Not really, no. Apart from the sign, I think. Right. The I light, is, is it indigo colour or not? No. Okay. No. All right. no, I love the name. The name is so right, isn't it? It's so right. It goes yeah. two together. I mean, she is an absolute visionary and it's so, I guess, quite rare to have someone commissioning work like that because she didn't stop there no. she hasn't stopped there she's done work with john wardle and uh, durbrack block next door a theater and a gallery yep. is that right yep and then um, also recently the judith nelson institute of journalism which is on did you do that Street. one alexander's designed that building. Oh, okay it's beautiful and many many different beautiful projects she's kind of absolutely a visionary and you've done her uh what do you call it the um the, the storage, no, art storage. Ale- Alexander's design. That okay, great. You didn't do that. Not that one. Oh, you're not Alexander's. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you've recently done your own studio, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> or did yeah. you commission someone else? I should have. <laughs> um, that's really, really cool to design your own studio mm. office space. Yeah. What was that like? It was like another dream project and it was sort of... Uh, well, you were your own client. Yes. And that sort of made, in many ways, it made a whole lot of things a lot easier you know, sort of wrestling with how much you want to spend on things, mm. how do you manage the variations during construction. But on that project, we wanted to um, build the studio that would be for our, our forever home, and therefore everything had to be very durable, mm. push a whole lot of frontiers in terms of sustainability. So we, we make our own energy and we have a lot of solar panels. We're a, a net exporter of energy. Mm. We... Um, uh, don't have any air conditioning in the studio space and use ceiling fans and underfloor heating and cooling to kind of manage the temperature. Um, everything is very durable, so the tiled floors and the terrazzo stairs will just get better with age. And then we also wanted to push the boundary a bit and do some things that we didn't know how. So um, we made a vaulted roof over the top of the building and um, it's made out of bricks, structural load-bearing bricks. Mm-hmm. Some things I've been interested in. I had done a basement with brick vaulted ceilings before and it was really beautiful and I wanted to live in a space like that. Mm. And, and then as a personal goal, I wanted to go back to those days of Indigo Slam and get really down on the building and go down there regularly. So I went down every second day for a year and a half and sort of spent some time with the builders working over every aspect of the construction. So I had a wonderful year of building that project, it was it was really special to enjoy that process and get very involved with all the detail. Yeah, it's going to be one of the best studios in the world, I reckon. Come and come and visit. No, have you got any yeah. spare space? Yeah, a little bit. Do you sublet? <laughs> <laughs> We're very environmentally friendly. 
you work with all types of clients and all types of projects from residential, commercial, and public realm. I mean, how do you how do you do it so well without kind of boxing yourself into one particular kind of sector? Mm. Well, um, do you deliberately do that, or is it or is it um, yeah, it's very just whatever client comes and takes you on a journey? Well, I suppose it's responding to um, a little, you know a little bit. The next job is based on the one that you've got at the moment, um, but we. We are interested in keeping it quite diverse. Most of our work is residential work, but we're also starting to do more public works and more commercial works. We enjoy that. What we're always looking for is projects where a creative solution is welcomed. Mm -hmm. So if it's a really easy solution, I'm sort of not that attracted to it. Where it's quite complex and difficult, I really like it. So sometimes when it's on a busy road or, you know, has to go above a railway tunnel and you know, under something else, I think that's kind of exciting. Mm. Um, so creative solutions, attention to detail. Does the client really care and want the detail? Because mm-hmm. if, if they don't, then we're going to probably drive them a bit crazy. Yeah. And then whether they want to go from start to end. And then, you know, some of the work we've done is in hotels and commercial buildings and other kinds of things. We're recently building a science gallery in Melbourne, which is nearly finished at the moment. And um, those projects start to allow us to develop new interests but we have a team of five people, five five teams in the studio, mm-hmm. and each team specialises in a, mm. a certain kind of building. So one one team just does houses, one team just does interiors, and they work over all of our projects. Mm-hmm. So they kind of work with the houses or work with the commercial buildings. One three architecture teams work at different scales on different kinds of buildings. So one's more of a commercial public building bias, another one is a little bit more biased towards master planning and large-scale projects. Another one is sort of more of a boutique apartment building mm. kind of type of architecture. And then, the, the, you know, sort of those specialisations uh, work around that. We also think that there's a kind of a some DNA that runs through all the projects. Mm. So if you line them all up on a wall, you'll see similar approaches to material, mm-hmm. similar approaches to structure and how that's integrated into the architecture. And um, there's a kind of a call it a style if you like that that starts to bind it together a little bit and recently we've been really developing our product design as well so i've designed door handles and grab rails for bathrooms and some furniture and if you also line that up with the architecture there's a natural fit Mm. there so i think there's a kind of dna that crosses over many different scales of projects cars are on the horizon yeah that's right (laughs) um Managing business, as I know, as a creative person, mm. you know, creative people aren't necessarily the best people to run a business. And it can take years at learning how to do it. And some of us do it better than others. Obviously, you're obviously still hands-on with the projects. Um, have you found yourself less hands-on with the projects over the years or are you still intimately involved? Yeah, like, like you know, there's that sort of expression about, I've heard coaches say, you shouldn't be working so much on the business as in the business. I think for me it's working in the business and I would rather other people work on the business a little bit. Mm. So I'm kind of absolutely... The happiest place for me is on a drawing board with some good music and a cup of tea. I kind of mm. love that, that world of just getting kind of immersed in it. Um, there's also the side of business you have to do is to try keep it all going and get the culture right and to keep sort of the team happy. It yeah. takes a lot of work and I, I, I find that very challenging you know if you're very controlling and you want to get certain standards then you can drive other people 
totally crazy, actually. Mm. And so how did you make, how have you made that work? Are, are, have you got someone running the business now? Yeah, so we have a CEO within the business who, a CEO, sorry, who, who really runs the operation mm-hmm. and she's amazing. Um, we have um, different people who specialise in each of their domain. And so I'll meet with those on a regular basis mm-hmm. and talk about yeah. the issues or what's looking forward and how we work with that. So it's not uh, entirely in isolation, but allows me to put my focus into mm-hmm. design because mm-hmm. I'm still involved with every project within the studio. There's some... You know, some more than others, of course. Yeah. But I'm still kind of involved with it, and, and I'm still at that point where I'm just checking a lot of the work that we're delivering and reviewing that on a regular basis, and making sure that we're um, being responsible and complying with the codes, and then delivering to the design standards that that we set for ourselves. Well, that, it's interesting because I mean, you probably have people that are working with you now that have worked with you from the beginning of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's quite incredible. Just that kind of continuity yeah. and understanding each and every one's kind of strength and weaknesses and personalities and stuff. Yeah, and some people... It can, it can be tough, right? It can be stressful probably, even though you're a very calm, mild-mannered chap. Uh, yeah, no, I'm kind of... Uh, things have got to be done well. And, I'm, you know, with my own work, with other people's work, I, was, I would do it again until we get it right. You know, and sometimes that means just throwing something in the bin and starting again entirely. Um, what we have learnt is that the best fit is where people naturally come from a similar place. So, mm-hmm. so if there's a natural love of the same things or love of the same design or there's skills that are very complementary, mm-hmm. it works very well. And I think the first 10 years, a lot of people would come and leave after a few years saying it's too hard. Quite that guy's good. an asshole. Well, mostly <laughs> that it's never quite good enough. And yeah. They would say, it's not, you know, you kept saying... Never satisfied. It wasn't satisfied. But some people like really, you know, they produce work and you look at it and think, oh my God, that's just so great, that's unreal. And others kind of come close to the mark and you feel, I've got to send it back and say, mm. it needs a bit more work. That's very hard. A bit like Bill. It? Bill? Bill, your, your, your tutor who kind of oh, yeah. sent you back. Sent me back, yeah. Go and read this book. Yeah, but you came back. That's right. Whereas others, I guess, go, you know what, this is, I can't get, I can't get it. Yeah. But it's cool. What, what, are, you, what are your, I guess perfection would be one of your values what what is your your values in the organization what what's the kind of that holds everybody together you know the culture there yes yeah, so you i guess is a major part of that with um, your vision yeah i think the, the people that come to work for us are very attracted to the work that we do mm-hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody can do it someone can like it and they can't do it yeah there's two different things there but they're attracted to that they're very motivated about the work so um, most of them are there coming there to make great buildings and to be a part of that process mm. and then I think some come to learn they come to learn from us and how we might produce things um, but what's sort of binding them is absolutely the work that we do there's a kind of drive to create great architecture and to you know to do some of the best work in the country is what they what they want to do mm. and do you find through you know, the years of doing what you're doing now, you get opportunities elsewhere around the world or is it still predominantly in Australia? Mostly, mostly in Australia. We are, we are doing a little bit of international work as well, which is really exciting. Um, um, I'm sort of, I'm not chasing that necessarily because I, I like being able to control the delivery of the work and I think it's essential to our architecture that there's someone on the ground checking regularly, making sure that it gets built 
in accordance with the drawings in the right way. So I don't want to sort of do work all around the world only to have the quality fall away. I'd rather just not go there. Mm. But if there are opportunities to to control the implementation of the architecture, um, then we sort of are certainly interested in those. Is your last name really smart? <laughs> yes. Is it? I remember hearing that someone said smart design early on when I came to Australia and I'm going, God, that's a great name for a design company. <laughs> and then it turns out there's a guy called William Smart. Yeah, there's also Baked Smart Architecture as well. Ah. And we've, we're collaborating with a few times on projects. So I think they think that that's smart. we're the Splinter project that's, you know, the Splinter studio that's broken away from theirs. But it is the name, like I said, name, I hated it as a kid. You know, just, to, you know, all the jokes about being smart or not smart or... And then as you get older, it just becomes a name, doesn't it? Like it, it was a bit of a responsibility to live up to it. That's right. You can't be. I mean, it's interesting. I kind of wonder, people often say to me, uh, and well, not often, not every day, but in the past, they say, I wonder how much your name, Frost, mm. has contributed to your, you know, the success of the business. Mm. You know, is it the simplicity of the name mm. that's played a part in people being more memorable yeah. or having kind of a double meaning, like your name has a double meaning? Yeah. Well, doesn't, maybe it doesn't have a double meaning. But it has a meaning. Um, well, that's a smart design is a, is a, is a kind of a statement, isn't it? I do you think, kinda, do you I think kinda, it is? Do you think that Frost does I, I think the it, name? I think it does. I do think an, a name as a branding agency, I have to say that a name is yeah, important, important for an organization. And, yeah. and finding the right name, obviously, at the time when I started my business back in 94 in London, that's what people did. They just called themselves their last name. Yeah. Or the, some people had the ego to call themselves their first and last name. I didn't do that because it sounded like an individual versus a company. And I think with Smart and with Frost, there's a name that could be, yes, it's our last name, but it equally it could, could be any scale of, of business. Yeah. And so I, I absolutely think that the name has made it, um, has, has contributed to ease of referring to the name. I mean, some people have incredibly long, complicated names, which I struggle with. Yeah. I think people by nature short, sharp, memorable names are memorable yeah. and therefore have a, a knock on a positive knock-on effect um, because of that. Let's talk about sustainability because you mentioned before around your studio about how you're kind of off the grid or you're do- whatever you're doing around that. Are you approaching that with every project that you work on, having a kind of sustainable conscience and doing all you can? Yeah, I think it's always been in our DNA, but we're, we're hoping to be pioneers in some aspects as well. So one big thing that we've been working on is underfloor cooling, like heating, and how do you bring that into um, architecture in a humid place like Sydney where it has a limitation because it can cause condensation on the floor. So um, a big thing we've been doing in our studio is to say, well, let's try and eliminate air conditioning from the studio mm. and create a reasonably comfortable working environment how do we do that and what are the options and, and, then, and then how much energy can we save in that process? Mm. I'm very keen on starting to take that into the world of our houses. I've done Indigo Slam has underfloor cooling as well as heating, so it kind of chills the slab and then wow. reduces the amount of air conditioning needed in that house. My French bulldogs would love that. They'd love it, yeah. Yeah, they love on cool. their tummy on the floor just cooling off. Yeah. But that's incredible. And, um, and, and the sustainability seems as though, you know, in the post... COVID world or, you know, as a result of this pandemic, I've noticed a lot of people asking many more questions about that. They're interested in health, they're interested in sustainability. I feel like it's been the big wake-up call Mm -hmm. to say, 
just like this Im pandemic has impacted on the global economy, there are, mm. other, there are other things around the corner that we need to be really aware of. So we're super serious about not throwing away roofing, or the real estate that a roof has to offer. So it either should be accessible and usable as a garden mm. or an outdoor space or you put solar panels up there or something that makes use of the roof. Mm. Don't just throw that away. Um, we're very keen on passive solar designs. So how do you use the summer and winter sun angles to heat and cool a place? What is the natural ventilation? What are the low energy fixtures and fittings you can do? How can you really reduce the footprint of that? Mm. And as a studio also, we're just trying to get down towards zero garbage. So we're uh, reducing all the time the amount of waste we produce as a business mm. and really focusing on cutting that back. Fantastic. And do you then help... You mean doing people's residential homes, do you do you help them yep. understand how to do that better themselves? Um, not so much about the waste, but we'll give them all the facilities to make it happen. Mm. And so in, a, in our office, we don't have... There's no bins in the studio. You have to... There are recycling uh, places where you can recycle two different types. Of your commingled recycling or your paper can go into a bin mm. on the floor. Otherwise, you've got to take your tea bags and your, your coffee cups or whatever you have that's... that's, that's for landfill and take it to a landfill bin in a distant take it home. corner. <laughs> take it home. Do your staff love you because of that or they embraced they've, it? They've embraced it, yeah. We, we, and we sort of talk about these things in the studio. So we could do this, we could do this, what do you guys think? And then everybody agrees. Well, they, they all sort of vote on it really, but the mm. votes certainly have moved us towards sustainability. And as a result of having a studio without air conditioning in the space... Is the I hate air conditioning. Do you? Oh, I can't stand it. But we get warmer... Like our holidays are hotter than most places. Mm. And no one complains about it, strangely, because they know you, there's no point in complaining. You can't just turn up the air conditioning. We have to kind of ride through it. But they'll come to work and wear shorts, you know, yeah. or just take their shoes off and put their feet on the cool floor. There's kind of, you know, it's a little bit warmer. It's not as cool as a, a completely con climate-controlled place. So there is a pro and con for that. But, but it's so nice having the quietness of... Mm. Of, a, of a still space and then to feel the natural flow of air. Fresh air. Yeah, it's so much nicer and everybody really appreciates that. I think I, I think I don't like it when it gets to 40 naturally, but I do I do like feeling the difference of a day, the difference how the, whether it's raining or it's moist, whether it's a certain amount of heat kind of coming through. It does, you do feel alive more so, but I think mm. people just come in straight away, whack the air conditioning on, shut the windows. They kind of want to maintain this kind of fridge environment, which I can't stand. Yeah. Throughout the pandemic, all of us have kind of felt this kind of uncertainty. You know, we're all, as creative people, as human beings, fairly optimistic. And to think of potential and to think of today as, as, as potential and, and the future, etc. The, the pandemic has made us all quite, I think, question life, question the world and how we live and are we going to be alive? <laughs> uh, there's been, it's quite unsettling. And I wondered how, what the impact was for you as an individual. Mm. Um, I think um, I was sort of probably not so worried about catching the virus. I wasn't sort of fearful of that. I was sort of trying to navigate our kind of team through that world, like just to sort of try to provide this stable environment where no one sort of worried about it really mm. so our message back to the team was we're going to try and push through this the best that we can mm -hmm. without losing any jobs or mm -hmm. or cutting back hours and we're going to try and f 
provide you with a safe, calm environment to work through and you can work from home or you can work from the studio. You make those choices around mm. you. And we, we were, you know, uh, successful in that. So mm. we were able to push through all of that. So that was, that's, I suppose, as you know, the leader of the studio, I felt like that was my, that was my family to be responsible yeah. for in this particular way. And, um, and we were, you know, Australia's been a very lucky place in, in that world and our business was kind of lucky due to its maturity and um, where we were sitting. Mm. So we were able to push through that in a very fortunate way. Yeah. I, we're, we're similar. I mean, I thought in the early days it was going to be the end of the business. Yeah. I really thought it was quite a scary time yeah. and really hard at, at that moment of time to be a leader of the business and, and have the answers. And I just said, look, guys, I don't know what's going to go on. Yeah. but but we just want you to be safe. We want you to kind of go home, uh, look after yourselves. We're still going to keep co- as much continuity as possible, trying mm-hmm. to keep the team together. We didn't lose anybody through that mm-hmm. process of whatever is it, nine, twelve, ten years, or uh, ten months, sorry, uh, that what it is now. Have you have you noticed that the briefs have changed in that in that time at all? Have people as the kind of the, the way that people commission you or the type of work that's being commissioned uh, has that changed? I think a little bit, like that, that, that point that I mentioned earlier about sustainability is certainly, that's front of mind for most of our clients now. What are we doing for, mm. for the planet and how do we make this a very safe place to be living in? You know, how do you nurturing? But I, I feel like there's a kind of subtle shift that people have thought about their homes as the core of where they live and work from. So working is kind of a practical if you have to work from home but there's a, 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 I think there's a general shift in the way people think about that and the thing I'm sensing is that um, people are probably going to want to be doing a little bit more gardening or a little bit more stuff from home or cooking or you know these things that you know in a busy life you just tend to bypass don't mm. you get takeaway because you're too busy to cook yeah. um, you get a gardener in because you're, you're too busy to mow the lawns um, that's that's something I've sensed, although there's not been many people coming and saying, I don't want to do any of that stuff anymore, I want to do it all myself. There's mm. I just sense that that's been the evolution of, you know, the briefs in the designs yeah. for houses at the moment. I guess it started with, uh, we had those horrific fires last Christmas. That we, we noticed it was a massive focus on a reaction to that naturally, yeah. globally. Yeah. Uh, as well, and how how our clients just started kind of streaming through, going, we need to be sustainable. How do we be more sustainable? Yeah, and you know, sustainable businesses coming in who wanted to be branded or wanted to be helped along with their strategic positioning, etc. So there has been a real change, mm. a real redesign through massive disruption. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we feel for the people who have suffered in this because not everybody's been successful. Yeah maintaining their businesses a lot of people have kind of still in the thick of it around the world because obviously people listening in are are in places that are um incredibly struggling um as we speak and we're it's not an advert for australia but we're fortunate that our government has been really shown strong leadership around kind of keeping this place safe yeah and i think other countries have been much more porous and much more open and uh, for the sake of the economy versus the sake of people's well-being what do you do outside of work, apart from run with your dog, shine beautiful cars? <laughs> I do. Um, I love running, and I, what I like about it is I don't take a, you know, I don't listen to anything. I just kind of 
run and slowly look more of a shuffle than a run. And that's kind of a great release for me. I suppose it's like other people swimming or something. Yeah. It's quite nice because you can just throw on your shoes and walk out the door. There's no driving, parking, paying, no. anything required, no towel even. Yeah. And it would be hopeless at all that because I kind of incredibly forgetful. So I just kind of enjoy running. I have a kind of a wonderful partner and we kind of like doing little cultural things on the weekend and have very low-key weekends. So for us... Um, Are you folding cardboard together? What do you do? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like going for walks. Going, We love Sydney dance and mm. the plays and the music on at the Opera House and love going to the movies. So much more of a cultural existence mm. than going to sporting events. Um, and then just, you know, not many friends, but a few really great friends. It's quite a kind of little quiet life and... A big part of the weekends for us is just uh, the quietness and the emptiness that comes mm. to recharge your batteries a little yeah. bit to get ready for the week that's ahead. So I, I, I enjoy that. And, you know, time with my dog and time with my partner are probably yeah. the other kind of great precious things in my life. You had an amazing studio and a house all in one in Burke Street. Yeah. But do you still live there? No. So we've, we've moved that entity to Alexandria. So again, Oh, you live there? live there as well. I was going to ask you, how do you make, because that's always been my dream. I mean, I, originally I used to live um, above a chemist and that was, the spare room was my studio in the early days. And, <laughs> and, I, and I love that kind of proximity, you know. Yeah. Halfway through the night going, you know what, I can't sleep. I'm going to pop up and, <laughs> and do, do a brand logo or something. How, how have you found that, that mix? Or is that just, your, pro, your, your life is, looks like it's one. It's quite, like right now, um, it's really perfect, I think. So we live upstairs, we'll have dinner together every night. I'll shuffle down to the studio after dinner. and In your slippers? In my slippers, <laughs> and my pyjamas. I can't imagine bit. that. <laughs> but the, um, I have a nap every afternoon, so after lunch I go up and have a 15-minute nap. And oh, my God. That's really nice. But it's this kind of, like, I don't have that that divide in my life, this half is work and this half is not work. It's it's the, the two cross over and... And work certainly crosses over into my private life much more than the other way. But having that together is really works very well for us. So mm. it's, I mean, some practical things you can put the washing on in the day and then go down to work and yeah. then pop upstairs and hang it out. So some of those things that just can become a bit of a chore, just kind of get managed into the day. And then the other benefit is that we have this kind of beautiful house that we can show our clients and yeah. say, you know, because most of the beautiful houses we do, we kind of. Um, finish and then say goodbye to our clients. You don't sort of rock up with your next client and say, here's a beautiful house we did for, you know, Bill. Mm. Um, we can show our clients that as well. Or, you know, have people come around for dinner or coffee or you know, sort of have this kind of nice. intertwined world. Um, but the, being able to pop downstairs if you can't sleep or something at night and, and fiddle with something is actually yeah. better for me than lying in bed thinking I can't, I can't work it out. I reckon if I had that, I'd pop out to a meeting and come back and the, the studio would be in my kitchen eating all my food. Really? I reckon that would happen. You could... Kids, you know, designers like, you sleep in my bed. Right. How do you stop that? You've got like barbed wire at the front door. Just a door and a lock. <laughs> <laughs> a no lock entry door. sign. Yeah, yeah. Is there rules? You say, look guys, I really love you, but you just aren't allowed into my house. Yes. You do? I don't think that's ever been said, but I know that. And also, there's a kind of un, unspoken rule that you just, you know, if you're, you don't, 
ring the doorbell to say, can we sort out the, coffee, the, the photocopy or something? It's just, I've gone home. The yeah, yeah. night's over. And I think like everybody, I kind of... Have you got any milk? Day. <laughs> I mean, there's probably more. I run downstairs and pinch the offices uh. more than they get mine. But the, at the end of the day, you kind of, you do literally at the end of the day want to, you've had enough, don't you? You go mm. home and think, I've, I've done enough now. I'm just going to go and watch telly in bed. Yeah, and it's nice and close. I mean, there's no... The journey. That's right. That's you know. right. And I suppose that's a nice part of running as well. I wake up, go for a run, like a long run, mm. you know, for 12 to 15 kilometres and feel like I've left my world behind. I get out in the morning and then come back and start the new day. Mm. I think that there's a lot of guys in London who are designers that are, are really good friends of mine and they, I mean, one of them is called Atelier, but mm. there are there are ateliers and they're, they're basically, it's your your studio, but it's also your home. Yep. Uh, and I've always loved that. It's the convenience of that, mm. but also the fact that their home and the studio are one. Mm. I mean, there are a division. The home might be on another floor, but right. their visual approach to the home and to the studio is the same. It's one in that regard. Yep. You know, it's not a eclectic, no, it's not like a, such a different look and feel for, yep. for each. So living and breathing their, their life and their business 100%. And there's lots of, in Sydney, I think, so much of the good building stock is shop tops, which we've sort of like frowned upon as being mm. lower grade accommodation. But I reckon shop tops are the best, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. If you can get a good entrance where you're not going down the back past the bins, yeah. um, then I just think that they're, they're awesome. They're so convenient. You can solve the sound problems with the right glass. Yeah. Um, there's definitely, the city is really, really fun. Yeah, there's definitely the a change. I think that's happening. Like Oxford Street, there's there's a lot of people who are doing that. They're kind of getting really? shops and living above it. Have you designed your life? I actually, I reckon I have actually. I don't like it. It for me, it's it feels a bit like design on the run. So I'm sort of responding to things as they come up. But I, I've certainly made a whole lot of really. Uh, deliberate choices about the life I want to live, the work I want to do, um, the place I want to live. Um, and they're all sort of informed choices. And then within those choices, you kind of curate the way you want to do that. So I choose to live above work, but I want to design the way that that, that life is as well as that environment is. Like it's not, you know, and I, I certainly do that. I, I feel like... Um, kind of quite sure about what it is that I want to do and um, and therefore think I understand what you give up in doing that. So working these long hours takes a bit of sacrifice as well, mm. but I feel like those choices I make and then stand by them and realise that in, in designing that outcome or creating that outcome, you make these choices and then, and then you can actually make it happen in many ways. I mean, there's very few people that I meet that have done it to the extent that you have, and obviously huge congratulations for being able to do that. I mean, most people kind of live a very schizophrenic life. You know, they maybe put 110% into their work, but their personal life is compromised or their home or whatever. Like, you've done it 100% at incredibly high quality, and I know that that's something that's not easy, but something you've persevered with. And um, as I said, congratulations. It's very enviable, but also... Um, a huge achievement and um, your your positive contribution to the industry, to the world, to people's lives is really to be congratulated. So well done there. Mm, thank you, Vince. 
And it's been really cool, uh, William, to have you on the podcast. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the fifth episode of Design Your Life. From Lego to Skyscrapers, the life of an architect with William Smart. See you next week when I'll be chatting to the Melbourne-based director of Studio Bright, Melissa Bright. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe. 